Our scripture this morning will be from three different passages in the New Testament. Galatians 1, 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 2 Timothy four seventeen and 18. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to, be, who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Good morning. (laughs) Pastor Curtis is away today with extended family in Georgia, and we have been looking at an extended series for the last number of weeks on sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, a series called We Must Go. And it's a privilege this morning to open God's word for you and bring the last message in that series. I'm calling it Before We Go. Before we go, our family, on trips, uh, there's lots of preparations, lots of things to take care of, lots of things to do, not the least of which is to make sure that the car is filled up with fuel. I mean, the last thing I want to do is to get stuck having to try to find a gas station off the interstate in Baltimore or D.C. at rush hour. It's just not what I look for. I want to get past, and then if we need to fuel up, we can. Fuel in the tank is always important. And I want us to consider this morning, as we go, what it is that we fill our tank with. We fuel up. We fuel up speaking of the good news of Jesus Christ. So today our message looks at uh, what we do before we go. And so it's built on a single premise. Here's that premise. What you enjoy, you talk about. What you like moves your lips. So if you are talking with me and you like books, I like books. And in the last year, if you're having this conversation with me and we're talking about things we like, books, I'm probably going to tell you how much I like a biography of U.S. President Lyndon Johnson by Robert Caro. Now let me tell you why I like it. Um, It's four volumes the author, Robert Caro, he's in his 80s. He's working on volume five, the final volume. I hope he finishes. Um, because the first are so good. Now, it's not because I'm a big fan of Lyndon Johnson. I'm not. But Caro is an incredible author. The way he does historical research and then takes that research and puts it into a compelling story. And then the words and the sentences, just they're alive. And these are huge books, and there's going to be five of them, I hope. 
And, oh, it's totally worth reading. Now, you see what I'm doing? I, you can tell, I really like these. My kids are like, Dad, what in the world? Those are really way too long. And there's not nearly enough pictures. But they're so good. I like it. I'm talking about it. Now, my kids would like it if I told you about my, our favorite family pizza place in New York City. It's Grimaldi's. There's one location right under the Brooklyn Bridge. And I can tell you why it's so amazing. But I won't. I can tell you why it's amazing to go and take in a baseball game. I won't tell you which team. But they did pretty well last night. So what you like, you talk about. Do you notice that's what was going on in our passages this morning? Let's look at them again briefly. In the passage from Galatians, Paul's talking about how we're delivered by the Lord. And what comes out of that? words of praise and glory to Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Timothy, he's talking about being rescued and the gospel of Jesus. And what comes out of his mouth? Words of praise and glory to the king. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the same thing. He's talking about salvation and eternal life. And what erupts out of Paul spontaneously is words of glowing praise and adoration for Jesus Christ. In each of these passages, what starts as good news ends in glory. You see, sharing the gospel, we must go. Sharing the gospel isn't so much about transfer of information as much as overflow of the heart. It's not so much about communication of data about Jesus but it's about conveying delight about Jesus. Let's go back to our premise. What you enjoy, you talk about. It's not just me. The Bible says this. Let's look. Psalm 39. My heart became hot within me, and as I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke. Let's go to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil of his heart, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In your heart, out of your mouth. Now, you might say, you know, this is, it's a little too emotional for my taste. Well, let me clarify. I'm not talking about trying to whip up your emotions. What I am talking about is that you can't and really won't talk about things that haven't first affected you. So if I, let's just theoretically say that you've never tasted honey. And I said, tell me about honey. Tell me why I should have honey on my toast in the morning. And you would say, I mean, good luck with that. Because it has to be something you first experienced and enjoyed if you're going to commend it to others. If you're even going to match and speak accurately to the reality of what you're talking about. So this morning, I want to spend the rest of our time before we go to the Lord's table, meditating with you again on the good news of Jesus Christ. Enjoying with you again the good news of salvation. So by way of preview, here's what we're going to do. Two parts today. We're going to kind of go 
wide-angle lens, big picture, and look at what is the gospel, and we're going to zoom in. We're going to talk about four benefits of the gospel. We're going to look at four pearls on the strand of salvation, four golden links in the chain of the gospel. And all this may be really familiar to you. You may have heard it since you were a child. I hope the Lord will give us open ears and open hearts to hear familiar things afresh today. That our hearts would be stirred with something we've heard before. Maybe you've heard others say it. Maybe even like the way we talk about it today, illustrations that are used, turns of phrase. You may have heard others. You may have heard me say it this way before. But I want to share with you today something that we're all familiar with. And yet, these are things the Lord has used in my life and moved me. And I hope that we'll be moved and warm ourselves again by this familiar fire. So what is the gospel? Well, in the New Testament, the word gospel comprised of two words, good and message. It's kind of similar in the English, gospel. It's from the Old English, God or good and spell or spiel. So it's like a message. So it's a good message. It's good news. So what is the gospel? It is a declaration of great news. It's a happy announcement. It's a boy. It's a girl. It's an announcement. Now, probably the average person today out there in the world, in the United States, has maybe an unarticulated kind of concept of what Christianity is all about. And they might think something like, Christianity is a bunch of good people giving good advice to good people about how to be good. That's just kind of the general conception. And nothing could be further from the truth. It is a declaration of great news. It is not a statement of good advice. As someone has said, there is a difference between good news and good advice. So let's think about this, right? Advice is something that's not happened yet, but you can do it, right? On the other hand, news is something that's already happened, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. You hear the contrast? So when I do membership interviews here at the church, we talk about what is the gospel, and I love to share this illustration. It's not original with me, but it goes something like this. So let's pretend that we're living back in the days of knights and kings and castles, and all of a sudden one day we get news that an enemy army has invaded the kingdom. So the king gathers his soldiers and the army, and they go out onto the field of battle some miles from the castle. Here we are. We're waiting to hear word. What will the outcome of the battle be? And so we wait. Now, if the king loses, he sends back advisors, military advisors. And they've got all sorts of advice, desperate advice. Fill up the moat, pull up the drawbridge, boil the oil, archers make ready, because we're going to fight for our lives. And there's response. 
There's lots of activity scurrying around. Lots of fear, lots of uncertainty. Now, on the other hand, if the king wins, he doesn't send back advisors. Who does he send back? Messengers. Very happy messengers. Good news messengers. And they've got great news. And they say, the king has won. Go about your lives. And similarly to the other scenario, there's response, not inactivity. There's response and productivity and action. But it's not filled with fear and uncertainty. It's full of joy and hope and confidence because the king has won. The gospel is not a statement of good advice. It is an announcement. Here's what it's an announcement of. It is an announcement that through the life and death and resurrection of King Jesus, God is setting everything right again, including the men and women who are repenting and relying on this king as their only rescuer from sin. You see, the good news is that Jesus came and he fought the battles that we could never fight, and he won. And he defeated our enemies, the enemies of sin and death and the devil and the world. He has come and he's fought that battle and he's won. And now there's nothing more to do. It's news about history. It's done. Nothing more remains except to live in the light of it. There is activity. There is response. But it's based on good news, not good advice. So why? Why is it good news? Why? Because it's not what we deserve. That's why. What's good about the gospel? Well, the good news is that there's also bad news. And the bad news is the illustration I used about the king and the knight and the the battle, it doesn't tell all the story. No illustration ever covers all the ground. Because in the reality is, it's like we're not a neutral party are we? We're not the citizens in the castle. We're the enemy on the field. We're born in opposition to God. We want to live life our own way. We don't want to live in acknowledgement of his kingship over our lives. We want to be the king. I mean, no one teaches a toddler to say no. We're just born that way. We don't want mom and dad telling us what to do. We don't want God telling us what to do. We're the boss. We want to be king. Around 1908, the Times of London sent out a survey question to some of the leading thinkers and leaders of the day, and it asked them this question. Give me your response, they said, to this question. What's wrong with the world today? And theologian and columnist G.K. Chesterton wrote back a short response, and he wrote, Dear sirs, I am. He knew that the biggest problem is not those things that are around me. The biggest problems in my life are those things that are in me. I'm a problem. We're talking about sin. It's not a word we hear a lot today. If you ever hear it on television, it's always a laugh word. Well, I guess it's sin. And everybody laugh, laugh, laugh. It's not even a serious word. It's a joke. But think with me about what we're talking about. What is sin? Sin is where I am living in a way that God is small 
and I'm big. It's where I'm living with myself as king, and I'm not even thinking about the fact that God is rightful king. It's selfishness that rejects God's rightful authority in my life. I'm not giving the time of day. It's my priorities, my schedule, my conception of right and wrong, my money, my words, my actions. But here's the problem. God knows we weren't made to live that way. That's the most inhuman ways to live. It's not living truly what is good and most humane and promoting of human flourishing. And God will not allow us to live in that kind of rebellion and anti-human way forever. And he's warned us that he will judge all those who reject his rulership as king. He will not allow us to reject the greatest good, him, and to continue to embrace the greatest evil, our own way. He won't let us just sweep it under the rug. He will not be ignored. You go on social media these days, and there's just outrage everywhere you turn, injustice everywhere you turn. God is outraged every day at those who belittle him, who live as if he is just a footnote on the book of their life. And it's hard, though, for us. It's hard for us to feel that same outrage when we're the culprit. But we all are. Sin, rightly, invites God's judgment. Sin defiles us. Sin puts distance between us and God. Sin isolates us, makes us alone. So what's good about the gospel? What's good about the gospel is is it's good because the contrast is so striking. And God had a plan to fix what's bad. That's the gospel. That's the announcement of that plan. So this has been the big picture, and now we're going to zoom in and look at how the gospel is good news. There are at least four benefits I want to talk about this morning. Four benefits that make the gospel good. What has God done in the gospel? Zooming in. There's good news regarding judgment. Good news regarding judgment. The judgment of God, we just talked about, that God will judge sin. God will judge our rebellion. We have good news in that area. Now, there's a big theological word I want to throw out. We don't often throw out huge theological words. There it is. It's propitiation. Propitiation. What does that mean? Well, if you maybe know another rarely used English word, something is propitious. It means it's happy. It means it's good. So propitiation means to make happy, to deal with anger, to deal with wrath. And that's what God has done. That's what propitiation does. Let's look. God's Word talks about propitiation in 1 John and in 1 Thessalonians. It says this, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? 1 Thessalonians elaborates, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we just talked about, God hates sin. He hates hates the outrage of it. 
against himself, against the creatures he's made. And in the Old Testament, when he talks about that his outrage against sin, he talks about it in terms of a cup, a cup of judgment, a cup filled with his anger against that rebellion, a cup that he pours out in judgment on those who resist his authority. And he's promised to judge. And he already has. Remember what Jesus prayed in the garden? Faced with his imminent crucifixion, he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the cup of God's judgment and he drank it all. Every drop. And so for you, brother and sister, who are trusting in Christ, there's no more drop for you to drink. When God forgives, he doesn't just say, you know what, that's all right, it's okay. No, sin has to be judged, and he's done it on his son. In his trial, in his crucifixion, men took Jesus, and they mocked him, and they beat him, and they whipped him, and they nailed him to a cross, and then God the Father turned his back, and the sky was dark, and for hours men had done their worst. And now the Father, as it were, took the whip in his hand, and lash for lash, and stroke for stroke, Jesus paid it all. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus dealt with the wrath of God for you. In your place, there's not a drop left to drink. This is good news. It's good news regarding God and his anger. But there's more good news related to how sin affects, not God, but how it affects us. There's good news regarding defilement. Here our theological word is expiation. Expiation. You can hear it in the word. It means to clean, to move away, to remove. You see, sin doesn't just anger God. It stains us. When we live according to our own lights, in retrospect, we find ourselves filled with guilt, remorse. You know, they say as people get older and the last days and hours of their life, it's been, someone has said it's kind of like watching a cityscape where the lights just start to kind of flicker and go out and go out and go out. And the very last light to go out is regret. But Jesus' death provides 
cleansing for that regret and cleansing for that remorse. 1 John and 1 Corinthians say this, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Paul says, and such were some of you. It used to be different. But now, what does it say? You are washed. Don't we want this? To be clean. There is a subgenre of movies out there. It's called the metaphysical second chance comedy. In other words, it ends well. Movies like It's a Wonderful Life or Groundhog Day. Movies where the character somewhere in the movie, they get to kind of bend the rules of time and space and nature in order to get a shot at changing the way things were. And we love those kind of movies. Why? Because isn't there something just fun about like, oh, I get to do a redo. That's what we want. We want to go back and, I wish I hadn't said that done that, experienced that, been there, been a part of that. We love the idea of a redo, and Jesus gives us that gift. In Jesus, we find washing, we find cleansing from the guilt of wrongs done either by us or wrongs done against us. He'll wash it away. You can be clean. Truly clean. You don't need to cover and hide your scars. Find your identity in those scars. You can be made new. It's good news regarding God's judgment. In Jesus, we have good news regarding defilement. But there's more. Sin also removes distance. The word here is reconciliation. Once was distant and far apart, we've been brought together. Our sin stood between us and God, a barrier blocking that relationship, and nothing could get through. Let's look at the New Testament in 2 Corinthians and in Romans. Paul says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then he says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Reconciliation. You know, forgiveness in a relationship, like in a marriage, for example, is important. In fact, at the men's breakfast yesterday, I said a few words to the men, encouraging them, guys, be the ones to initiate in your marriage, in your relationships, whatever context you may be in, be the one, the first one to say, I was wrong, I sinned, would you forgive me? Forgiveness is important. But in the big picture, it's really not important. In a relationship, it's, I don't want forgiveness. I want a restored relationship. One pastor said it this way, When my wife is angry at me because I have sinned against her, 
some ugly word maybe, when I get up in the morning and see something that didn't get done that I wanted done, and I speak harshly, which a husband is not supposed to do, and she's hurt and angry, and I'm guilty. I need her forgiveness. Why? Why would I want that? Because as she stands at the sink, her back manifestly to me, I want her to turn around. And I want her to face me. And I want to be able to look into her eyes again and have it be really good. Forgiveness is just a little step that leads to the larger reality that we want is that we want restored relationship. And our sin stood between us and God like a mountain that nothing could get through. No relationship, no closeness. We could not cross to him, and the way was shut before us. The pass was closed. We could not get through. The mountain of our sin, we could not get through. Your sin, my sin, your failure, my failure stood between us and God. In reconciliation, Jesus removed the mountain. And now there's nothing between. The relationship has already been restored. But that wasn't enough. It's not enough to God for the relationship to be brought back together. It's not enough just to be brought into proximity. It's not enough just to not to no longer be enemies or to be at a distance. He didn't want just to bring us close, not just to bring us into his circle. He wanted to bring us into his family. We're talking here about good news regarding isolation. We're talking about adoption. Let's read about it. Romans 8 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then in Ephesians, Paul writes, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, as sons and daughters. Now, back when these passages were written in this Roman first century culture, adoption was not the same as it is today. Today, you might adopt a little baby, cute, sweet, giggling. But in this day, when a person did not have an heir, maybe there was a wealthy merchant, no, no child, that merchant would be looking around to adopt. Who would he be looking around to adopt? An adult What kind of adult? The very best. Someone worthy to carry on the family name and the family fortune. Someone who's capable and able and responsible and trustworthy and worthy of that name. The best. And Jesus Christ came and found us in our worst and said, I want you in my family. Not just to be servants in the household at the door, not just to be strangers and neighbors 
outside, but into his family. He brought us into the favor and delight and blessings and laughter and warmth of his own family. The tender compassion of a parent. The patient reminders of a mother. The understanding listening of a dad. The security of a home. The belonging of a family. We're reminded today that he calls all who are his family around his table. He says, come, your family, let's eat. Let's be together. Let's enjoy what I have done. Children, come. I'm going to ask the men to come and serve us. The Lord's table. It's a visual representation in the bread and the cup of what the Lord has done for us. And it's a reminder that his death has made us one, has made us family. If you're not in Christ's family, then when the elements go past you, just let them go past. Or better yet, if you've not trusted Christ as your rescuer and repented and turned from your sins, why don't you do that right where you are and find for yourself a seat at the table and welcome into God's family? Brothers and sisters, shall we gather and enjoy and eat and remember and rejoice before we go?